morning, everybody. For some of you, school has started. For the rest of you, school's about to start. And this is a good way to start. I know we have a lot of people on vacation trying to sneak in these last uh, hours away before uh, things get super busy. But we are so glad you're here. And we got people watching on the internet. We're glad you're watching there. Welcome to Carpenter's Way. We are going to have a great morning together. Thanks for being with us. If you would take your worship guide uh, and open it, I want to highlight a few things. If you're visiting with us, we are glad you're with us at Carpenter's Way. Our, uh, our hope, of, we, we certainly want you to like us, but our hope and our prayer is that you fall in love with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, having been with us. So thanks for being here. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 2 uh, this morning, and uh, so uh, if you want to start looking for that, or it'll be on the screen, or... Uh, we're just glad you're with us this morning. And uh, after the service, if you're visiting, I'd love to shake your hand. I'll be up here right after the service with my wife and, uh, and come up and introduce yourself, and uh, we'll answer any questions we can But we're uh, about the church, but we're glad you're here. For those of you who have been with us a while and are ready to jump in and, and join the church, our next uh, new members class is September 23rd. Uh, we do this four times a year. We have this class, and that's how you come into membership in the church. Uh, it's really more leadership than membership. If you attend here without being a member officially joining, we're still going to love you and pray for you and encourage you and, and draw you into ministry and different things. But uh, if you're ready to help us uh, uh, lead and be a part of what we do here on the inner inside, uh, we would love to have you do that. Uh, what we do is it's one Sunday, starts at 9.30 and goes till about 11.45 in the library. And uh, all of the leadership of the church at one point or another kind of stops in there, the elders, the staff, just to shake your hands and answer any questions you have. But we go through uh, the doctrine of the church. I do that part. We go through uh, how we function, what our, what our decisions are made, how our leadership structure works, because we want you to know how we function so you can function within that. But that is September 23rd. Uh, we would love to have you be a part of that if you're interested. Information is in the worship guide about that. So I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time. As these uh, folks come up and prepare for our offering, uh, what this money goes for is our mission work. We are participate with the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, where we give tens and thousands of dollars a year towards international mission work, discipleship, evangelism. Uh, we also support, I think it's like 15 missionaries and, and ministries as a church individually, uh, things like the Mosaic Center, Pregnancy Help Center, um, Amazon Outreach. Uh, it, it's exciting. We went last year, we about I think it was about 10 or 11% of our budget, uh, and we increased that this year to about 16%. Excuse me. So uh, about 16% of our annual giving goes towards mission, short-term and, and full-time, and that's, that's an exciting thing. And, and this week in your worship guide is an insert about the Mosaic Center. We want you to be praying for that organization. And in fact, if you know anybody who, who, who is interested in that training or you feel would benefit from it, it is uh, women's uh, occupational training. It, it, it's a Bible study. It's, it's an 11-week program. It's a phenomenal program. We can answer all these questions for you, or we can put you in touch with somebody who does who can, but if you know somebody who might benefit of this, uh, we would love to put you in contact with them. Anyway, so these offerings go towards our mission work. It goes towards paying the bills here, and uh, um, so we appreciate you participating if you attend here regularly, and if you don't, we ask that you not give. This is for those who attend here regularly, but we're awfully glad you're here. Let's pray and commit our time to the Lord, and then, it, then let's do what we came here to do. Father, we love you. Uh, thank you, uh, Father, for being so good to us, even when we don't act like we love you. Even when we misrepresent you to a world, even when we do our own things and rebel against you, your love never ceases. You never give up on us. 
You continually cry for us to surrender to you, and I thank you for that. Lord, there's a lot of stuff going on in this uh, community this week. Um, some kids will be going on their fourth day of school, and teachers, uh, other kids will start tomorrow, and we pray for strength. We pray for families as they uh, evaluate how uh, that what they want to do this year, grandparents as they're involved in the raising of their grandkids. Lord Jesus, I pray that this year would be a season of great revival for our community spiritually, that as we uh, get our kids to study and as we try to educate them and make them worldly wise, I pray that we would also be committed to making them spiritually wise. And I pray for our teachers, Father, who invariably right now are either extremely excited or very nervous. I pray for peace for both, uh, dependence on you, and an understanding that what they are doing is serving in their mission field. Give them wisdom and insight, whether they're teachers, administrators, janitorial, wherever they serve in this field. And for the rest of us, Lord, help us to see those around us as our mission field, placed perfectly by the King of Kings in our present situation. So, Lord, we turn this service over to you. We turn our lives over to you. And we ask you to meet with us this morning in a very special way. In Jesus' name, amen.
the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters. Mightier than the breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days.
Yeah. 
What a great way to enter the Word together this morning. Um, you know, um, there are, this is, this is a very emotional weekend for a lot of our family as they've been dropping kids off, their first children at college. Uh, we had the unique opportunity on Friday of moving Annie into her apartment, so we are truly empty nesters, and uh, that is a wonderful and terrible thing. Uh, we are very proud of our kids and where they're at in their lives and their walks with God and what God has for them. And uh, Julie's very pleased that she gets to spend more time with me. I have been <laughs> playing with my children for 22 years as far as Zach and 19 for Anna, and now <coughs> she gets to be my child. So I, I, I don't know what that means. That was just off the top of my head. Please don't text. If you want to or need to, text Jeff Bonin at CW. BC.org. You know, um, a couple things happened pretty cool this week, <clears throat> and then I'll bring us into what I want to share with you this morning. And I, and I need you engaged today. So get that. If somebody falls asleep near you, do that wet willy thing. Lick your finger, stick it in their ear, because you need to stick with me. Because this is this is either going to be the most boring message you ever heard or life changing. One of those two. There's no middle ground for this week's message. But you know, one of the cool things is I went to a pastors meeting this week. And uh, Jacob Fitzgerald there, who is now the pastor of Denman Avenue, and he reminded me that his spiritual roots started at Carpenter's Way, that he came to know the Lord there. And uh, Zach, as you know, is a, uh, in the Master of Divinity program at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. And uh, he shared with me uh, just this morning that uh, he had forgotten to tell me that one of uh, the head of the theology department, the Master of Divinity and Theology, uh, was from Nacogdoches and got saved at Carpenter's Way. And uh, so that, that's exciting. That is a legacy. So that being the case, I want to remind you that what we do when we worship and what we do when we gather, what we do is not about us and how we feel. It's not about that. It's about God. And whether you're in a good season of your life, just like there's lots of exciting things going on, uh, kids going off to college, exciting but sad at the same time, some of us are, are, are getting medical things or getting older and all those things weigh on you. But God is still faithful. He's still good. And as we gather each week, what we're doing together is not trying to figure out how to manipulate God. That's going on in a lot of places right now. But actually, as we gather together, we're learning about the character of people under a fallen state and the character of God and the relationship between the two as laid out in Scripture, book by book, Story by story, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It is unfortunately becoming a more unique experience to go through Scripture like that as a church. Um, but I still think that if we want to know God as He wants to be known, we need to let Him introduce Himself to us. And we do that not by just listening to what people have to say about Him, but by engaging Him personally and directly, individually and corporately. And that's why we... Uh, commit ourselves as an elder council and me as your pastor to the written word of God, studying it as it was written. The written word of God, and I want to be clear on this because this is becoming controversial somehow in the modern church, so I want to say this as much as I can. The written word of God is final authority on truth. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, 8 through 10, Paul said this, let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven. So let God curse anyone, including myself, Paul says, or an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. I say again, as what we have said before, if anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, past tense, 
the one you already heard, the one you accepted, let that person be cursed. I want to warn you to be careful not to merely take the word of good preachers and good writers that you love and respect. Don't just take their word, word for it. As to who God is and what he's doing, we all have blind spots, even preachers and writers. For God himself has placed in your hands his word. That's one of the unique gifts we have today is the written word. You know that back in the day, it was just the spoken word is all they had, but you have the written word. You can read it and study it for yourself in many different versions. It's wonderful. Translations, not paraphrases, but translations that will help you understand them. And this, this book you have in your hands that we call the Bible, it's actually 66 books written and put together, uh, 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 written over a period of 1,400 years by 44 different authors, both men and some believe women. We have some books we don't know how or who scribed them or wrote them, but they all have one author, and that's God himself. And they're written to as the revelation of God to teach us who he is. And it's a complete work, and it comes with a warning. In Revelation 22, 19, and this is a warning for some of you in this church and some of you who are listening, that if you add or take away from this book, it says that the judgments of God will be upon you. That is how serious that book you have in your hand. The 12 books you have on your shelf matter. We all have a, multiple copies of this. But that needs to be your compass, that book. And it may be quicker and more entertaining or even easier to hear someone tell you what the book says, but God wants you to know it for yourself. He wants you to know it for yourself, and he has introduced himself to us and to you through this wonderful book, and I beg of you, commit yourself to the word of God. Commit yourself. As, as it, it, I know January 1st is the beginning of the year, but it feels like September is the beginning of the year. Even if you're a grandparent, because your kids are getting busy and your grandkids are getting busy, commit yourself to his word. It is not too late as long as you have breath. Just read this book. Read it. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what's true. It makes us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what's right. And God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. And that's what we do together as a church. Our job on Sundays and our gathering Bible study times, although we invite you to know Him if you're not saved, is actually to take saints and equip them for what God has for you. God has not called you, probably, to teach at, at Southwestern. He's not called you to teach at Moody Bible Institute. He's not, he's not called most of you to pastor a church. He's called you to serve where you are, and especially teachers this time of year. And I'm including homeschool teachers. If you have chosen, if you and your spouse, or you have decided that God has called you to homeschool your kids, that is a wonderful calling, but that is your calling. That is your ministry. That is your mission field, and you must disciple your children. If you are doing it purely out of not having a schedule, you're still doing it. You've got to disciple your kids. You've got to grow them up in the faith, not just in the knowledge of Scripture, but living it out in their lives. And that means you've got to be living it out. And I know it's tiring, and I know it, it creates anxiety, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. There's no doubt about it, but God has called you to this. And I think you're going to find this text encouraging this morning because so it was with David. So let's pray. Let's, let's bow our heads, and, and I'm going to ask you to ask the Lord to speak to you from his word this morning. Would you just pray that in your heart? Now I'm going to ask you to pray for the person directly on your left, whether you know their name or not. Would you just tell Dad that you want them to hear from the Holy Spirit this morning? Now I'm going to ask you to pray for me. 
that although the, te the text is long this morning, that my words will be few and clear. They're from the Lord and not from my own prejudices. Our hearts, Father, are open to learning. Our ears are open to hearing. And your spirit is present, so we ask you now to change the way we think and in turn change the way we live by the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Amen. The Hebrew people who also had the written scriptures, uh, they would study even in, under the Old Covenant, the first five books of the Old Testament. You are familiar with this, even if you're not familiar with it, it's called the Torah. And in every traditional Jewish show you've ever seen where there's a synagogue, there are books up front, scrolls that are kept in the front of the synagogue. Those are the Torah. Those are the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. And the, the people at the time of 2 uh, Samuel had the Torah. They understood the writings that Moses left them. They had seen for themselves the power of God in and around their people. And yet, despite that, they still did not want God as their king. And because they didn't want God as their king, and Samuel was getting old, they went to Samuel, their, uh, their, their high priest and prophet, and they told him they, that as, as he aged, they didn't want his sons to be the prophet, so they wanted a king who would, who would go on their behalf before God and lead them. They wanted a human king. They were, in effect, rejecting God. And Samuel, as upset as he was, went to God and told them what the people were asking for, and in turn, God said, give them what they want. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Give them what they want, and God gave them King Saul. And for, throughout the first book, uh, uh, and again, in the Hebrew, this is one large book, but in the English Bible, it is First and Second Samuel. First Samuel's all about the people rejecting God, at person after person, priest after priest, uh, tribe after tribe, and uh, king, this king, they reject God. And the result is destruction of the nation. If you remember from our recent weeks, this story ends with the nation being overrun by the Philistines. But during that time, it's interesting because uh, a group of mighty warriors from the community of, uh, of Jabesh, Gilead, actually pray and fast, and they take the body of Saul, and they give him an, honor, honor, uh, an honorable burial, and they repent for the nation. And 2 Samuel is all about God restoring the nation. This morning, we're actually going to get through the first four chapters, believe it or not. I know, we're going to have to move through. Some of you just got shocked into waking up. I saw one of you jump, and I don't want to point him out. But we're going to get through this because, it needs, because it's history, and it needs to be treated like this. I want you to get bored with this. I want you to go, are you kidding me? Because that's what I did in my study this week. I mean, you, you read this stuff, and you go, how could you do this silly, stupid stuff? And the answer is our application. So God is about to restore this nation. And before we jump into 2 Samuel 2, verse 1, I want to remind you that the God of the universe begs you to come to him no matter what you've done with him in the past, no matter what you're doing with him today. Acts 3, 19 and 20 says this, Repent of your sin and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. And if you're here this morning or watching on the internet and you do not know him, or you are not in fellowship with him, or you are running away from him, I want to begin by saying, I beg you to run to him. You cannot outrun him. Your sin cannot outweigh his grace and his mercy. He loves you. He died for you. He sent his son to die for you. And his Holy Spirit is calling you to himself. I'd like to remind you of the heart of our God. Repent and return that times of refreshing can come from the Lord. Unfortunately, though, 
A personal restoration of your relationship between you and God, although immediate, does not mean all the situation around you is immediate. This morning's text represents another seven and a half years of David's life. Another seven and a half. We found that for the last 10 to 15 years, David has been chased by Saul from cave to cave, and and just because he was called by God to be the next king. And Saul is chasing him all over the countryside to kill him, to protect his legacy so his own children will take the throne. And, And he's running for his life. Well, Saul's dead. And so God is about to restore the nation. But it's going to take seven and a half years. Painful, painstaking, boring, frustrating, seven and a half years. Just like it happens in our life. If you find yourself this morning crying out to God and repenting, but you're addicted to heroin or porn or your flesh in your marriage or your religiosity, there's a period of restoration that's going to be painful. That's how this works. Second Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. After this, what is this? Saul's dead. David it goes back to, he's at Ziklag. He gets word of that. Remember, he's in Philistine territory. After this, David asked the Lord, should I move back to one of the towns of Judah? Yes, the Lord replied. So how did he talk to the Lord? Probably, remember, he had a high priest with him. They had an ephod. That's probably the way he communicated. Then David asked, which town should I go to? To Hebron, the Lord answered. David's two wives were Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, from Carmel. So David and his wives and his men and their families all moved to Judah, and they settled in the villages near Hebron. Then the men of Judah, pay attention, the men of Judah came to David and anointed him king over the people of Judah. So where are we? Saul and three of his four sons are dead. The Hebrew army has been decimated by the Philistines and what has survived their battles has actually snuck and intermixed on what is left of Hebrew communities. David has mourned both the loss of Saul and his boys, especially his best friend Jonathan, and has fasted for the nation as a whole when the Lord instructs him to move 25 miles to Hebron inside of the Hebrew territory, a place that he's been begging to return to in which he hasn't lived for two years now. Again, While the restoration of the relationship between God and those who are repentant is immediate, the restoration of the nation, that is the 12 tribes, will feel painfully slow for them. However, the restoration of the nation that you will see in 2 Samuel begins at this point with David seeking God's guidance of what to do next and God instructing him to move back. It's really important that you know this. For those of you who've studied um, all the Old Testament, you understand that the nation ends up divided after, Sam, after Solomon's sons split the nation into a divided nation of northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And yes, this is uh, the end result of that, but this is the beginning. This is actually the nation has been infighting now for years and years and years, but one of the 12 tribes. So David is now told by God to move back to Hebrew territory. God has already anointed him king. God is now going to put him on the throne, but I want you to note that he is only one-twelfth of what he should be. I want you to understand it. We, we get in our mind that, okay, northern and southern kingdoms, so it must be half and half. It wasn't half and half. It was 11 of the 12 tribes are still in absolute rebellion against David. Only one of the 12 actually make him king at this time. Talking about brutally slow. It's a mess. Verse 4. When David heard the men of, uh, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead had buried Saul, 
He sent them a message. May the Lord bless you for being so loyal to your master Saul and giving him a decent burial. May the Lord be loyal to you in return and reward you for his unfailing love. And I too will reward you for what you have done. Now that Saul's dead, I ask you to be strong and loyal subject like the people of Judah who have anointed me as their king. Now I want you to get this. What has David done to deserve any of this? And the answer is, be called. That's all. David ends up running the first 30 years of his life as a nightmare because God simply said, that's the man I want to be the next king. It starts by Saul chasing him around the countryside and he's waiting for God to restore him and take Saul out. God takes Saul out and all of a sudden he goes back, but there's only one twelfth of the nation that's even interested in him. So what is God asking David to do? Beg others to be part of his people. I, I, I want you frustrated. I want you to feel what David is feeling. He has to be going, are you kidding me? You know, like you with three kids and two are perfect and one is, are you kidding me? That's how this had to feel. I mean, he has to late at night go, God, why are you doing this? Why have you done this to me? What have I done to deserve this? David is beginning to attempt to piece this nation back together. Ironically, in Exodus 32, the first real king of Israel, Jehovah, referred to this group of people as stiff-necked, proud, and it doesn't change. It hasn't changed. Verse 8. And here's what happens. This is crazy. But Abner, so David now has the tribe of Judah making him their king and Jabesh-Gilead people as his, their king. But the rest of the nation starts here. But Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had already gone to some person with Saul's son Ishbosheth. I'm not going to destroy these names. I know you want me to. There he proclaimed Ishbosheth king over Gilead, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, the land of the Asherites, and all the rest of Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king, and he ruled uh, from Mahanam for two years. Meanwhile, the people of Judah remained loyal to David. David made Hebron his capital, and he ruled as king of Judah for seven and a half years. So now you have the big picture. This is what's going on. For seven and a half years, David is going to rule one of the 12 tribes. Then he's going to take authority over all the rest of the tribes. But before that, two of those years, Ishbosheth, Saul's only remaining son, is king. For the other five years, it's a mess. They're in rebellion. And he's going to describe what that looks like here, starting in verse 12. One day, Ab Abner led Ishbosheth's truth from Mahanaim to Gibeon. That is the location of where Ishbosheth reigned. About the same time, Joab, son of Neherah, led David's troops out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. The true group sat down there facing each other from the opposite sides of the pool. Envision this. You got this beautiful pool, like the one at Livewell. And, and, and you have general of Saul's army or Ishbosheth, and you have the general of David's army. They show up. And they're sitting across from each other, yelling across the uh, water feature. Abner suggested to Joab, verse 14, let's have a few of our warriors fight hand to hand here in front of us. All right, Joab agreed. So 12 men were chosen to fight from each side. 12 men of Benjamin, representing Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 representing David. Each one grabbed his opponent by the hair and thrust a sword into the other side so that all of them died. So this place of Gibeon has been known ever since as the field of swords. You get what happened? 
Basically, you have the two armies on opposite sides of the Livewell pool. They're sitting there. You have the two generals yelling at each other. Hey, instead of all of us dying today, why don't we just do what we did with Goliath, because that worked out so well, and we'll send our 12 best warriors out, and we'll let them fight hand to hand. And it is believed by some theologians that they were not supposed to have, they were supposed to just fight. They weren't supposed to have swords, but all of them show up with, uh, with small knives, and they grab each other by the hair and run, you know, run each other through, and they all die. So all 12 are dead. What a mess. What a mess. This was unnecessary. All they had to do was God's will. That's all they had to do. Verse 17. A fierce battle followed that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by the forces of David. Joab, Abishai, and Ashael, the three sons of Zerah, were among David's forces that day. Ashael could run like a gazelle, and he began to chase, chasing Abner. He pursued him relentlessly, not stopping for anything. When Abner looked back and saw him coming, he called out, Is that you, Ashael? Yes, he replied. It is. Go fight someone else, Abner warned. Take one of the younger men and strip him of his weapons. Now, I want to pause for a second, because even though you would think that Abner is, trying, is afraid of dying, that's not what's happening here. So, in all this twisted story, Abner, who is in charge of Saul's army or his son's army, actually is going to be worried in a moment about the future of the nation. This is going to create more conflict. So why don't you, instead of chasing me to try to kill me, because you're not going to kill me, I'm going to kill you, why don't you go chase one of the younger warriors that you can take, and then you can steal his wealth off of him. That's what he's saying. Take one of the younger men and strip him of his weapons. But Ashael kept right on chasing Abner. Again, Abner shouted to him, get away from here. I don't want to kill you. How could I ever face your brother Joab again? you got to be kidding me. This guy's in absolute rebellion against that group of people, and he's worried about the future unity of a nation. This is how twisted we get when we don't walk with God. This is how chaotic our mind gets. Who cares? The 11 tribes want to defeat the one tribe anyway. They want to defeat him, but, but he's, he's worried about that. Verse 23, but Ashael refused to turn back, so Abner thrust the butt end of his spear through Ashael's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. Okay, there's a lot of detail there, but for those of you men who like warrior stories, basically what he does is the front end of a spear did two things. Number one, you could fight and stab with it, but number two, if a person is chasing you fast, remember it told us he was really quick, if you get underneath like in a low place and the person runs, you put the end of the spear in the ground and they will fall onto the other end, the blunt end, and it'll run them through. That's what happened. That's what happened here. He doesn't even have to fight him. And he's dead. He refused to turn back, so Abner thrust the butt end of his spear through Ashael's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He stumbled to the ground, and he died there. And everyone who came by the spot stopped and stood still when they saw Ashael lying there. Verse 24, when Joab and Abishai, that's David's generals, found out what had happened, and the brother of the dead guy, find out what had happened, they set out after Abner. The sun was just going down as they arrived at the hill of Amma, near uh, Gia, along the road of the wilderness of Gibeon. Abner's troop from the tribe of Benjamin regrouped there at the top of the hill to take a stand. Abner shouted down to Joab, must we always be killing each other? <laughs> okay, so just, you, you don't think that's funny? That's all these people are doing is killing each other. That's all they ever do. Don't you realize that bitterness is, only the, is the only result? <laughs> now he's a peacemaker, a psychologist. When will you call off your men from chasing their Israelite brothers? as if they started it. Then Joab said, God only knows what would have happened if you hadn't spoken, for we would have chased you all night if necessary. 
So Joab blew the ram's horn, and his men stopped chasing the troops of Israel. All night, Abner and his men retreated through the Jordan Valley. They crossed the Jordan River, traveling all through the morning, and didn't stop until they arrived at Mahanaim. Meanwhile, Joab and his men also returned home. When Joab counted his casualties, he discovered that only 19 men were missing, in addition to Asheel. But 360 of Abner's men had been killed, all from the tribe of Benjamin. Joab and his men took Asheel's body to Bethlehem and buried him there in his father's tomb. They had traveled all night and reached Hebron at daybreak. This is a crazy story. This is a frustrating story. And you have to ask yourself what David had to be asking himself. Why doesn't God just fix this? Why is this allowed to continue? What is wrong with this? It's nuts. They're family. They're cousins. These are God's chosen people. And they're killing each other. And while in battle, they're worried about the implication after many years of rebellion. Chapter 3, verse 1. That was the beginning of a long war between those who were loyal to Saul and those loyal to David. As time passed, David became stronger and stronger, while Saul's dynasty became weaker and weaker. These are the sons who were born to David in Hebron. The oldest was Amnon, whose mother was Ahanoam from Jezreel. The second was Daniel, whose mother was Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel. The third was Absalom, whose mother was uh, Mekah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth was Adonijai, uh, whose mother was Haggath. The fifth was uh, Shepheth Adath, whose mother was Abitiah. The sixth was, really weird name, whose mother was Eglot, David's wife. These sons are all born to David in Hebron. If you're counting, that's now six wives that David has. I will save you the email by telling you, I don't know. And I will also add to that, that no matter what you have been taught, the truth is that the instruction for the king was not that he could only have one wife, but that he was not to have many wives, is the Hebrew word. In other words, you get to define how many many is, and apparently six is many, is not too many. And that's what you have. God was slowly, methodically, in a godlike way, though, that we often find frustrating, and David had to find frustrating, moving the power. And I hope you see this, because it keeps reminding us what God's doing, even as we read these ridiculously stupid stories. God is slowly and methodically, in a divine way, moving the power over to David while reducing the influence of Saul's rebellious heirs. When the time finally comes to unite the nation, after the seven and a half years of this foolishness, this weird thing happens. This is how God does it. As the war between the house of Saul and the house of David went on, Abner became a powerful leader among those loyal to Saul. One day, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, accused Abner, okay, the power behind the throne. I hope you're getting this. Stay awake. You may have to lick somebody's ear here. So, so get this. So now we're going, we're leaving David for a few minutes and we're going over to Saul's heritage. We've got Ishbosheth, who's a weak king at best. And basically the power behind the throne is Abner and he's, he's propped this guy up. He has protected his throne. So as the war between the house of Saul and the house of David went on, Abner became a powerful leader among those loyal to Saul. One day, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, accused Abner of sleeping with one of his father's concubines, a woman named Rizpah, daughter of Ahi. Now, this is a bigger deal than just a jealous guy, okay? This isn't his concubine. 
It's his father's concubine. And what's important for you to understand here is that part of the spoils of being a king was you took the concubine or other women, okay? A concubine was a legal thing. It was a, uh, she would be a lover to the king, but without the rights of a wife. So she would serve in his house. They would have sexual relations, but, all, but would not be considered a wife, did not have any inheritance. But when a king was overthrown, the next king would either be given or take the concubines of that previous king. So actually, what Eshbosheth is doing is accusing Abner of staging a coup. If he, in fact, sleeps with one of his, Saul's concubines, he's saying, I'm the king. Get it? A lot of stuff going on between the surface. Abner was furious, verse 8. Of course he is. Am I some Judean dog to be kicked around like this? After all I have done for your father Saul and his family and friends by not handing you over to David, is this my reward? That you find fault with me about this woman? May God strike me. Now all of a sudden he's godly. May God strike me and even kill me if I don't do everything I can to help David get what the Lord has promised him. Take a breath. If you're not careful, you're going to read right through that line. Remember I told you this is either the most boring message you heard or the most life-changing? I want you to realize what he just said. I can't believe that you would accuse me of trying to take your throne. I could have killed you years ago, and I chose not to out of respect for your dad. So I just, I, I can't believe it. I'm so upset. May God destroy me if I don't put David where God already said he's going to be. In other words, now you know that Abner already knew about the prophecy of David being the next king. And I have to ask myself, well, then what the heck are you doing? And the answer is standing against God, like everybody else, like Saul. You see, it wasn't just Saul that was screwed up. It's all the whole nation. They actually think, they actually think they can stop God's plan. I'm going to start at verse 9 again. May God strike me and even kill me if I don't do everything I can to help David get what the Lord has promised him. I'm going to take Saul's kingdom and give it to David. I will, abolish the, I will establish the throne of David over Israel as well as Judah, all the way from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. Ishbosheth didn't dare say another word because he was afraid of what Abner might do. Yeah, I bet he was. Game changer. The wonderful sovereign hand of God working in the midst of absolute wicked chaos. You see it, right? I just don't understand personally, though, why these people think they can thwart the hand of God. Until I think about what a lot of the prophetic teaching today is about how, how the mark of the beast is coming and we've got to keep people out of office who are going to bend towards that or God's plan might actually happen. We still do it today. Where there's books, you can buy dozens of books at any Christian bookstore or online that tell you how to get God to answer prayer the way you want him to answer, not the way he's planning to answer them. How to manipulate him. We still have this going on today. And as I read this, I go, wow, what a bunch of, wow, just like us. They're just like us. Then Abner sent messengers to David, verse 12, saying, doesn't the entire land belong to you? Now he knows. Are you perplexed by this? This is supposed to be long and grueling and a little bit confusing and boring because you're supposed to be going, what is wrong with these people? I mean, he actually, again, identifies that the land belongs to David. Make a solemn pact with me, David, and I will help turn over all of Israel to you. All right, David replied, but I will not negotiate with you unless you bring back my wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come. David then sent this message to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, give me back my wife, Michael, for I bought her with the lives of a hundred Philistines. He doesn't mean he purchased her like a slave, but that was the dowry, remember? That's what, that's what Saul required. 
So Ishbosheth took Michael away from her husband, Palti, son of Laish. Poor Palti. He followed along behind her as far as Baharam, weeping as he went, Come back! Come back! Then Abner told him, Go back home, you big baby. So he returned. Poor guy. You see, this is what happens when the king gives you somebody else's wife. That's what happens. You see, she belonged to David. Saul had given her to David. And if you remember, Saul just took her away and gave it to this guy. But I want to remind you that he, he may or may not have known that. But there are consequences when we sin. It affects everybody around us. This mess is because these people didn't follow God, because they rebelled against God. This is the consequence. Now pay attention to this, verse 17. Meanwhile, Abner had consulted with the elders of Israel. I know some of you right now are going, what is the point of all this? This is the point. This is what it looks like when you choose to rebel against a holy God. Abner had consulted with the elders of Israel. For some time now, he said to them, you have wanted to make David your king. What? Now is the time. For the Lord has said, I have chosen David to save my people Israel from the hands of the Philistines and from all the other enemies. By the way, a little side note, all of these guys he's talking about right here knew that David had been anointed because do you remember when David was the wee little boy and Samuel came and got him and he goes to the elders of the town of the king uh, and he said, come with us. Remember that it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just David and his brothers and his dad there. It was the elders of the community. They had watched this happen. You see, the whole nation is culpable in rejecting David as their king. This is what it looks like when you know the right thing to do and you don't do it. This is what it looks like. Crazy. Verse 19. Abner also spoke with the men of Benjamin. Then he went to Hebron to tell David that all the people of Israel and Benjamin had agreed to support him. When Abner and 20 of his men came to Hebron, David entertained them with a great feast. Then Abner said to David, let me go and call the assembly of all Israel to support my lord the king. They will make a covenant with you to make you their king, and you will rule over everything your heart desires. So David sent Abner safely on his way, and they high-fived each other. They hugged. They did a little genuflect as Jews do. They put their little yarmulkes on, and life was better, right? Not so fast. Chapter 3. But just after David sent Abner away to safety, Joab, who is David's general, remember, and brother of Asheel, whom, who was killed, so right after David sent Abner away, Joab and some of David's troops returned from a raid, bringing much plunder with them. That's what they did for a living. They stole other people's stuff to bring wealth into the kingdom. <laughs> Is this story stupid or what? When Joab arrives, he was told that Abner had just been visiting the king and had been sent away in safety. Joab rushed to the king and he demanded, what have you done? And by the way, I don't know how to do it in my voice because I'm not an angry by nature person, but he is not very happy. What have you done? What do you mean by letting Abner get away? You know perfectly well that he came to spy on you and find out everything you're doing. Joab then left David and sent messengers to up with Ab catch up with Abner, asking him to return. They found him at the well of Sirah and brought him back, though David knew nothing about this. When Abner arrived back at Hebron, Joab took him aside at the gateway as if to speak with him privately. Hey, dude, time to make peace with me. But then he stabbed Abner in the stomach and killed him in revenge for killing his brother Ashiel. So in case you're not clear, the death of choice is running somebody through in this nation. 
When David heard about it, he declared, I vow by the Lord that I and my kingdom are forever innocent of this crime against Abner, son of Ner. Joab and his family are the guilty ones. May the family... Now, this is what is required if you kill somebody in a, in, unlo, uh, illegally in war. You, the king was supposed to condemn them. Listen to his judgment on him. May the family of Joab be cursed in every generation with a man who has open sores and leprosy or who walks in crutches or dies by the sword or begs for food. So that's David's response. So Joab and his brother Abishai killed Abner because Abner had killed their brother Ashael at the, at the Battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and all those who were with him, tear your clothes and put on burlap, mourn for Abner. And King David himself walked behind the procession to the grave. They buried Abner in Hebron, and the king and all the people wept at his graveside. Then the king sang his fun this funeral song for Abner. Should Abner have died as fools died? Your hands are not bound, your, chain your feet were not chained. No, you were murdered, the victim of a wicked plot. All the people wept again for Abner. David had refused to eat anything on the day of his funeral, and now everyone begged him to eat. But David had made a vow, saying, May God strike me and even kill me if I eat anything before sundown. This pleased the people very much. In fact, everything the king did at this point pleased them. So everyone in Judea and all Israel understood that David was not responsible for Abner's murder. Verse 38, then King David said to his officials, don't you realize that a great commander has fallen today in Israel? And even though I am the anointed king, these two sons of Zeruiah, Joab and Abishai, are too strong for me to control. So may the Lord repay these evil men for their evil deeds. What a mess. Even if you don't remember anything I read, your mind is swimming because it's supposed to be swimming at this part of the historical study. This is what it looks like when you rebel against God. It's chaos. It's insanity. You can't even trust your own people. You want to know how David felt? Listen to Psalm 13. Oh, Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart? Every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, God. A little courageous there. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I'm going to die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. Ever felt that? Maybe when your child became two or went to high school or whatever or last Wednesday if you're in Lovekin School District, you looked for the first time at your students. Could I just have one year with really nice kids? Or on the parent visit night, you met them. Worse than the kids. I mean, have you ever felt this? Come on. Or how about when you went home and looked who you're still married to? Or you looked in the mirror and realized who you still were? Lord, I've given my life to you. Why am I still tempted to sin? God in his powerful, sovereign plan continually allows us to freely reject him and his plans. Even though we cannot ever actually stop his plan from being accomplished, ask Jonah. Even though our free will allows us to throw a wrench into it and make it more painful, our free will cannot stop his plan. Even as we look back on God's sovereign in our lives and the difficulties, you can always look back and see his finger drawing in the sand. I get the question all the time, how do I know what God wants me to do, Pastor? How do I, you talk about hearing his voice. The scriptures talk about hearing his voice. How do I do that? And I've got to, I, I want to tell you something. I have yet to hear the voice of God. 
but I can look back and see him directing and guiding all the time. There are some who hear his voice in unique moments. I respect that. I'm not going to doubt it. I'm simply here to tell you that that's not how it normally happens. It normally happens by looking back and going, how great is our God? Look what he has done. Because of what he has done, I can now trust him for what he is about to do. 2 Samuel 4. I'm going to read this real quick. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard about Abner's death at Hebron, he lost all courage. I'd like to say the little courage he had. And all Israel became paralyzed with fear. Now, there were two brothers. Story's not over. <laughs> this is so stupid. Bina and Rechab, who were captain of Ishbosheth's raiding parties. Okay, so these are his boys. They were sons of Rimon, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, who lived in Beeroth. The town Beeroth is now part of Benjamin's territory because the original people of Beeroth fled to Gidim, where they still live as foreigners. Verse 4. Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him and he became crippled. More on Mephibosheth later. One day... Rechab and Bina, the sons of Rimon from Beeroth, went to Ashibeth, that guy's house, around noon, the king, as he was taking his midday rest. The doorkeeper, who had been sifting wheat, became drowsy and fell asleep. So Rechab and Bina slipped past her. I really, really, really want to make sexual, uh, you know, uh, gender jokes right now. It was a woman guarding him, okay? It was a joke. Just lighten up. We need more humor in our culture. She was sleeping. Uh, so Rechab and Bina slipped past her. They went into the house and found Ishbosheth. I can't say his name anymore. Sleeping on his bed. They struck and killed him and cut off his head. So that's the other way they like to kill people. Then, taking his head with them, they fled across the Jordan Valley through the night. Does anybody know why they take a head with them? Just so you know. Proof of death. When they arrived at Hebron, because they've got a really good idea. Now, another thing to point out here is you notice when they define this community, it says that some in the community had run over to the Philistine territory and lived, where they still lived in foreigners to this day. So it gives you an idea that they're not committed at all even to Judaism. They're not committed to Israel. They're not committed to God's work or the people's work. These guys are always looking out for themselves. So when they arrived at Hebron, they presented Ishbosheth's head to David. Here we go again. Remember, this happened with Saul's head, right? So we have the second king over the other 11 tribes' head now being presented to David. Look, they exclaimed to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of your enemy Saul, who tried to kill you, as if he had forgotten. Today the Lord has given my Lord King revenge on Saul and his entire family. It'd be a good time to pay us. That's, that's an asterisk right there. But David said to Rechab and Bina, the Lord who saves me from all of my enemies is my witness. I'll continue that thought in a minute. David isn't just talking. The end of Psalm 13 where he says, have you forgotten me? Turn and talk to me is this, but I will trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he has been good to me. You see, to be a man after God's own heart doesn't mean you don't get tired, discouraged, or frustrated. It means that when you're tired, discouraged, and frustrated, you choose to trust in God because you know his ways are best. It's a choice. It's a choice here, not always here. Verse 10, someone once told me Saul is dead, David said, thinking he was bringing me good news. But I seized him and I killed him at Ziglag. 
That's the reward I gave for this news. How much more should I reward evil men who have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed? Shouldn't I hold you responsible for his blood and rid the earth of you? So David ordered his young men to kill him, and they did. They cut off their hands and feet and hung their bodies beside the pool of Hebron. Then they took Ishbosheth's head and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. There's a lot of blood going around this story, isn't there? Chapter 5. Almost done. Then, once all this mess was over, all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told them, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the only one who really led the forces of Israel. <laughs> now they've been fans all along. And the Lord told you, You will be the shepherd of my uh, people Israel. You will be Israel's leader. Not only did Abner know, not only did the elders of the other 11 tribes know that God had anointed him, but now you have the old nation agreeing that God had already told David that he was going to be the next king. How rebellious are they? So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years in all. He had reigned over Judah from Hebron for seven years and six months, and from Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. All of his life up to now is a nightmare. And it's not going to get a whole lot better when he becomes king of the 12 tribes. But this guy's life's difficult. He had to look up into heaven, and we see it all over the Psalms, where he's going, what is going on? Why are you allowing those who speak against me to win? Why am I still in a cave? Why is all this happening? This isn't fair. And then when he finally is anointed king over Judah, it doesn't go smoothly. It takes him seven and a half years. Seven and a half years for those people to bow the knee to the man that God had put on the throne. To David under the old covenant, God was confusing, frustrating, but worthy of his trust. Under the New Testament back in the day, Peter wrote this because God to the child of God in the new covenant is often painful, frustrating, confusing, confounding. He wrote this to us because we feel like this a lot. In 2 Peter chapter 3, I want to remind you that in the last days scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. Listen to what they'll say. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything was remained the same since the world was first created. Where's your God? They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. Don't forget this. Of everything I've written in my two letters to you, don't forget this. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. Actually, the Lord isn't be really being slow about his promise, as some people think, and as it may feel, I'll add. No, nope. he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anybody to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. The heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives we should live. So here's he's going to tell us how to live in the midst of that. 
We should live holy and godly lives, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On the day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, as he promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, do you ever get tired of waiting? Do you ever get tired of watching the news and seeing how crazy this world is? Do you ever get frustrated with the sins of those around you? Maybe who you're married to or your children or even your own frustration. Do you ever get tired like David must have been? So, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in His sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our brother Paul also wrote about to you with the wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all of his letters. Now, some of his concept, uh, comments are hard to understand. Nice shot, Peter. <laughs> He's a little confusing. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture. And this will result in their destruction. You already know, know these things, dear friends, so be on guard. Then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. Some of you, many of you, I think probably the number one profession we have at Carpenter's Way is teachers, the educational system. More of those people per our attendance than any other group. And whether last week was good, if you started last week or this week starts good, there's going to be a time in the next few weeks where you're going to get frustrated with the state for not paying you enough, uh, for the insurance for everything that Satan wants to throw at you to forget you to forget that you are not doing a job. You are committing a mission. God has placed you in the college you're in to teach, in the college you're attending, in the high school you go to, or in the school you're teaching to work with those little crazy rugrats. God has placed you there. And like David, who was placed to be the king in waiting... You're going to look around and go, man, I kind of get this story because I am surrounded by people who live just like that. You're going to turn on Fox News if you're conservative and find the left frustrating as heck. You're going to turn on CNN, both of you, and you're going to watch that. And That was a shot at their ratings. That wasn't a shot at liberalism. But you're going to look at the right and say it's frustrating and Trump tweets too much. You're going to, Satan wants us on edge, frustrated and angry instead of doing what Peter said, which is live in peace with all men and live holy lives. That's all God's asking from you. I'm not saying it's easy, but that's what David did. David just got up every day and went about his business, and you're going to find that he struggled with his flesh. But the truth is, that's our calling, because God is coming back. Jesus is coming back. The truth is, he's only been gone for two days. Unless we still don't believe Scripture's true. You see, to us, it's been 2,000 years, maybe 2,300 years, something like that. But if it's been 2,300 years, it's been two days and about three hours. God is patient. And why? Because he wants all to come to repentance. I thought you were an election guy. Don't worry about that. God said, whosoever will may come. My theology doesn't change God's plan. He wants every man, woman, and child to be saved. That's why he didn't allow the angels in Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah when they walked into the place. He gave them time to repent. They didn't, but he gave them time. You see, that's what our God does. Our God begs with people and pleads with people and allows them to come. And he sends us humans out there to tell them that they can be redeemed too. That kid that's going to drive you nuts this year is God's mission field to you, even if it's your first child. You see, I'm not really just talking about public school teachers or private school teachers. I'm talking about homeschoolers. You see, that little rug rat that turned five this year and refuses to do their homework, that is your mission field. 
And your job is to figure out the best way to minister to them. And if God has led you to homeschool, then you homeschool in the name of Jesus, just like the public school teacher. Public school teaches in the name of Jesus. You see, what we've done is we've allowed Satan to turn our mind, just like the Jews, into thinking, this is spiritual and this is secular. This is God's work, this is my work. This is, there is no such thing as my work because you have been crucified with Christ and you no longer live. It may not be fair to you, but let me remind you that the only difference between the human experience between the believer and the non-believer is not that the believer has less pain or more pain. It's that the believer has somewhere to turn in the midst of the pain. I want to remind you as you look around that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and how tragic it is that anybody goes to hell when God sent his son to die for those people. And how selfish is it of us to get so frustrated politically or emotionally or civically that we resent people that Jesus died for? You see, his love for them should compel me to draw them to the king. But I'm so busy wanting a good life that I forget about God's call. And how is that any different than what these people do? You see, as we look at these stories and we're fascinated and frustrated and bored with their wickedness, I want to remind you that that's what it looks like, no matter what age you live in and time, to not surrender your life to God. That's exactly what it looks like. It doesn't work for you. If you are struggling or not struggling with same-sex attraction, I've got bad news for you. It will not work even if you get married to somebody of the same sex because it doesn't work without God. God created you to worship him, to know him, for him to be your daddy. And until you bow the knee to him, no matter how you identify, no matter what your sin of choice, there will be destruction and resentment all around you. Look at our society. How is it benefiting us not to, I mean, to move away from God? It's not working. And you know, I, I don't believe this is a Christian country. I think this was a country that had Judeo-Christian values. But I look at the people who founded our country, and I don't see a lot of godly, spirit-filled men or women. I do in this room, a lot of you. So here's the thing. You may be in year two of a seven and a half year sentence before God raises you up to what he, he's preparing for you to do. That was wrong what I just said. You're in the middle of it. David did this for 17 and a half years. And then he got what he thought was going to be the greatest day of his life. He becomes king. Wait till we get there. That's a real treat. Be careful what you ask for. Actually, go ahead and ask for it. Just ask God for grace while you're in it. This is going to turn out good for us. You know that, right? Three of you know that? Okay, well, maybe I haven't taught enough about that. This ends really, 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 really well for you. All of you who have called on the name of the Lord have been saved, are being saved, and you will be saved. It's going to end really, really well for you. God's got a plan. He's willing to sacrifice your peace in this life for his plan. He's willing to allow you to go through things that you can't understand, whether it's singleness or a bad marriage or bad kids. He will do that for his own purposes. He will use you to draw them to himself. He will do that, and then he will take you home in a short period of time, and forever we will rejoice and hang out together. And it will be ultimate retirement on the beach we call the New Jerusalem. It is coming, my friends. Live for that. Serve now. But it is a grueling, long, tedious 
you got to be kidding me process in the middle. But it's almost older, over because you all are looking old. It is amazing how I look in the mirror and 51 still looks like 19 to me. But you all are closer to death than you've ever been. And remember what script with the New Testament says, oh, death, where is your sting? Where's your sting? For the child of God, it's the great resurrection. Until then, we work. My job, and the job of the elders of this church, and the job of the Bible study leaders, is to remind you, you keep on keeping on. If David, a man after God's own heart, was tasked with this, he's going to task you with the same. Trust him. Even if your head, your heart, even if your heart is going, where are you? Turn and talk to me. Choose to trust. I'm aware that the baseball game started three minutes ago. So blame your Bible study leaders instead of me because they're going to talk for another hour. I love you. I'm in this with you. Sending my kids away. They're doing their thing now. I'm going to double down on this. My job is to remind you to live at peace with all men and to live holy lives. But Mark, I'm dying. My job is to remind you that the children of God have always struggled. It's okay. God is doing his thing. Trust him. Soon, my friends, soon, all of this will be reconciled and we will battle no more. Get it? Either the most boring message you ever heard or the best. You can decide. Let's close in prayer. Father God, help us to see you in everywhere we look. Give us your heart for the lost. And may we love them, not because they're lovable, but because you love them. Help us to take our eyes off of ourselves. Heal marriages in this room. Heal relationships between parents and kids. Heal families. Heal this church. Heal our community. Heal our, our, our state. Heal our country. Heal our world through the message of Jesus Christ. Amen. Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes.